0: You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. Good morning, courageous class. Welcome to your first official chapel. Good morning, surrendered class. It's great to see you. Woo-hoo. Hey, I'm your advisor. I'm super excited about that. Surrendered class. Welcome, faithful class. It's great to see you. And appointed class. Thank you, appointed I appreciate that. Little woo okay, y'all gotta work on that. All right, well, it's great to be with you. As Reverend Hasselhoff said, my name is Sarah Baldwin. I get to serve as your Dean of Students and Vice President of Student Development. And a little about me, if you don't know me, I'm married to my husband, Clint, and we have three kids. We have one who's a visionary and just completed her time here, and two little ones that you will see around campus frequently. So uh, a little bit about my family background, my dad immigrated from South Africa to Canada when he was 12, so I'm half South African, born in Canada, I lived in England with my family for a while, then moved to Kansas, moved to Kentucky, right here to Wilmore when I was about 10 and a half. Grew up in Wilmore, and uh, I went to Asbury, met my husband here. We are outliers. Most of you will not meet your spouse at Asbury, but we did. We're outliers. Then uh, together, we moved to Michigan, back to Kentucky, to Oregon for nine years, which was a real highlight of our family life and then back to Kentucky. So that's a little bit about my journey. Hopefully I can connect with some of you Oregonians and perhaps some of you from England and Canada. That's all part of my story. So this morning we are in the book of Matthew chapter 4 verse 18. I'll read it for you if you want to pull out your scripture and in Matthew chapter 4 verse 18. As Jesus walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw his two he saw two brothers, Simon who was called Peter and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen and he said to them follow me and I will make you fish for people immediately they left their nets and followed him and he went from there he saw two other brothers James son of Zebedee and his brother John in the boat with their father Zebedee mending their nets and he called them Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. Lord, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are still in the work of calling us to follow you. Help us to listen to your call on our lives. In your name, amen. So a few years ago, I went with a group of students on a 75-mile canoe trip. And certainly I've been canoeing plenty of times in my life, but at this particular time, it had been a while since I was in a canoe. And maybe the story I'm about to tell you, maybe I had a little too much stress, who knows, but we were getting all of our students and about a fleet of like 30 canoes and all of our water and our gear for this three day, 75 mile canoe trip and so i was assigned to this beautiful canoe we found out later it was a beautiful wooden gorgeous canoe we found out later it was the heaviest canoe in the fleet but my the student beth who's now my friend she and i got into this canoe we loaded it with all of our gear and our stuff and our water and all the things you need and we set off on our canoe trip well things turned out pretty bad right away. Right away, Beth and I really were struggling to paddle this canoe. I mean, we were working so hard at it, and for some reason it kept drifting to the shore. And no matter how hard we worked, it like drifted to the shore. So we watched all of our other students and friends going on ahead of us. We were further and further into that line of canoes till you get to like to the place where there's just one the caboose canoe after you. So we were working hard, sweating. It was a hot day already. And I started to get a little mad at Beth (laughs) because she was in the back, right? And she was like more responsible for the direction of the canoe. So I started to get a little mad at Beth, a little mad at the situation. And as we went down mile after mile, I was like, this is terrible. This is not working. Our canoe keeps drifting. And then we got into these little light rapids and our canoe got stuck in an eddy. And we just kept turning around and we couldn't get out, oh man, we were so miserable. It took us forever to do that first four miles, and we finally reached our landing spot for lunch, and everyone else was already there having a great time, their canoes all pulled up on shore, enjoying their lunches, and Beth and I pulled our canoe up on the shore, and I was thinking, I don't know, I don't know how I'm going to do 71 more miles at this, I mean, am I, like, what is wrong? What have I done? Well, at that moment, one of our students came by and he said, hey, 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 you all know that you're in your canoe backwards? Do you know that uh, you're trying to paddle from the rear? (laughs) And sure enough, I was sitting in the rear of the canoe facing forward in this little cramped spot. And Beth was in the back, which was actually the front. And the whole time our canoe had been trying to right itself. So the whole time it kept trying to like flip around and get in the right direction. (laughs) And we had been working so hard to paddle the canoe backwards. Yes, it was a very humbling moment, but let me tell you, when we turned the canoe around, we had a much better experience. The next 71 miles of our canoe trip was much more enjoyable. My friend Beth and I we were disoriented on how we were paddling. We were trying to make this journey, and it t- taking all of our force and energy and literally our sweat, and we were facing the wrong direction. And as a result, it was a lot of work, but very little power. <laughs> You know, you've heard from Dr. Brown and Reverend Hasselhoff this week talk about what it means to be a unified community, to talk about what it means to be Christ followers. And we talk a lot about being Christ followers and disciples in this community. We talk a lot about this semester our theme is unified, but we always talk a lot about being unified with Jesus, disciples at the feet of the cross, the foot of the cross. We are unified around Christ. But one thing I've learned from my own experiences over the years and from listening to a lot of students and to a lot of my friends is that sometimes, myself included, we do the work of trying to do all the Jesus things We do the work of trying to check all the boxes and follow what we think it means to be a righteous person and do the churchy stuff, and we do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. We do it without really knowing Jesus. We do it taking all of our energy to paddle in a system that doesn't work for us, without the intimate knowledge and experience of Jesus Christ. When we talk talk about trusting Jesus, how can you trust Jesus if you don't know Jesus? How can you know Jesus if you don't experience Jesus? Discipleship is built on knowing Jesus and without a relationship, without the experience of the Holy Spirit in your life, it is like paddling a canoe backwards. It's a lot of work, without the joy or the power of the presence of God. George MacDonald, the spiritual mentor of C.S. Lewis, says it like this, the more familiar you are with a religious system, while your conscience and your will remain unawakened and obedience has not yet begun, the harder it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, how I would say that, in, in Sarah's words, I would say the harder you try to paddle in a religious system without experiencing God for real and giving your life in relationship for, with Jesus, the harder it is to step into the full life of Christ. I mean, it is impossible to experience the power, the trust, the intimacy, the steadfast love that this community is built on. To know Jesus is the orienting factor of becoming a Christ follower. Religiosity and churchy things, or even doing the right thing, is not the goal. But relationship with Jesus is. And until you experience the relationship and power of the Holy Spirit... This preaching, these words, will feel vaguely inspiring (laughs) or just like another thing you should do or some things to write on a piece of paper and think about or something to put on a list of goals and objectives for your life. But like paddling a canoe backwards, it'll just take you in circles without the orienting love of Jesus. In order to trust Jesus, in order to go, grow in Jesus, in order to live this holy life that we talk about a lot here, it's all about knowing and experiencing Jesus. As my friend and spiritual mentor, Kobe Miller, says, to know, to trust Jesus, to know Jesus, <laughs> how did she say it? To trust Jesus, you have to know Jesus. To trust Jesus, we have to know Jesus. And as we know Jesus, our trust increases. So think of someone that you know really, really, really well. Someone that you know that when, you know, back back in the day when I was a student here, we did a lot of like sepo notes. I think y'all just text now. (laughs) But back in the day when you got like notes or letters or real mail, you could like tell. Those people in your life, there's probably just a few of them anymore, where you can tell by their handwriting who it's from or perhaps like the people in your apartment or the people in your family, that when they walk in the door, you can tell by their step who's come home. I can tell when my husband steps in the door, because it's often with a whistle, but I can tell, that I could tell the difference between my husband and my oldest daughter when they come in because of their presence in the space. I know who they are. I know them well. If you really get to know someone well, you can even begin to discern, right, what they said or didn't say. So I imagine if you met someone on the sidewalk and they said, I just had a really big conference with Dr. Brown and he told me to really, the goal of my time here was really just to play video games and not go to class. You would already know enough about Dr. Brown to be like, yeah, no, he didn't say that to you. But as you begin to know people, you begin to be able to validate yeah, that's what they said, or that isn't what they said. This is the kind of knowing that over time can be developed in your relationship with Jesus. That when you become a student of Jesus, over time, you begin to be able to discern. discern. When other people say, yeah, yeah, God told me this or God told me that, you have this internal sense of like, you know, I need to hear more about that. Because that doesn't sound like the Jesus that I know and experience over time. Or if they say, this is what the Bible says right here, see right here. But when you have experience with Jesus, you can begin to say, you know, my experience with Jesus as I've studied Scripture over time has allowed me to understand this in this context. So you begin to develop discernment, and that is about knowing Jesus. So back in Jesus' day, if you were a male in your mid-teens, you most likely would begin the family business. So I wonder, in your head, what do you think the family business is? <laughs> that would be your, your job. <laughs> so, uh, so back in Jesus' day, you know, if your family was farmers, you became a farmer. If your family were grape growers, you grew grapes if your family was into carpentry, you were apprenticed as a carpenter. You you learned the family business. And about the mid-teens, the students, the, the male students, the female students stopped studying much earlier, but the male students stopped studying at the synagogue regularly. They stopped going to school and began starting their family business, except for a few. There was a few students, the best of the best, who knew their Torah backwards and forwards, who really thought that they might like to become a rabbi. For whatever reason, a calling, a sense of scriptural study had led them to, I think I'm called to be a rabbi. So these students, in about 14 or 15, would start to look around for a rabbi that they wanted to become a student of. When they found that rabbi, they went to that rabbi and they would say, Rabbi, I would like to be your student. I would like to learn from you. I would like to become a rabbi like you. So that rabbi would uh, take a look at this student. The rabbi would assess the student. Does the student have what it takes to take on my yoke of being a rabbi? Uh, What is the student? The rabbi would ask the student some questions. What do you know about the Torah, about tradition? What do you think about Rabbi George over here, or Rabbi Joe over here? (laughs) What does this passage mean? Explain it to me. What does this verse imply? The rabbi would assess the student very carefully. Could this student carry my yoke? Could this student really be my disciple? Now often the the rabbi may send the student home, Very thankful for your interest, but I think actually you should go take on your family business. But if the rabbi thought the kid had what it took, the rabbi would say, Come, follow me. And that student, that disciple, would follow the rabbi everywhere. They would most likely leave their mother, father, friend's village. They would attach themselves to the rabbi. They would give up their own life, their own preferences, their own rhythms in order to follow and learn from the rabbi. Even now, if you go and see a disciple of a rabbi in the same tradition— Sometimes you would even see them wait outside the restroom for their rabbi. (laughs) They want to be so close to their rabbi. An early rabbi, one before even the time of Jesus, is recorded to say to his disciples, get so close to your rabbi that the dust of his sandals covers you. You became an imitator of your rabbi. You followed so closely on their heels that the dust of their sandals would kick up and get on you. (laughs) So knowing that, I find this little passage about Peter and Andrew and Jesus pretty fascinating. Because although we do have a few accounts of people asking Jesus, can I be your disciple? We see that Jesus sought out his disciples. Now, there are a few other famous rabbis that did this, but it is very rare. The process was that the student would find the teacher, but instead, Jesus pursues his disciples. Now, these fishermen would not have been the top students. They were not in school any longer. (laughs) They were working men. They weren't even the owners of the business on the shore administrating. They were doing real work. They most certainly would not have been the star theological students at the synagogue. Instead, they were fishermen. But yet, these are the people that Jesus calls, go follow me, be my student. In other words, I choose you. I believe in you, Peter. I believe in you, Andrew. I believe you have what it takes to be my disciple. And then as we know in the end of Matthew, to go out and disciple others, you have what it takes. I choose you. Do you know getting to know Jesus is not simply you trying to get close enough to Jesus, but it is Jesus pursuing you. Dallas Willard, an author and theologian, says we have received an invitation we have been invited into a pilgrimage into the heart of god and the way we enter into this pilgrimage is through relationship with jesus the way the truth and the life Now, i want to get really practical my last few minutes get really practical about how do you get to know jesus how do you be a disciple of the rabbi jesus so, four things you can write these down or like, you know, text them to yourself. Four things. Number one, the first thing you do is ask. Dallas Willard also said, Willard also says: the first thing we should do is emphatically and repeatedly express to Jesus our desire to see him. Remember, the rule of the kingdom is to ask. So in your followership, in your knowing of Jesus, you start, number one, with ask. Number two, get in the dust. Get in someone's dust. When Jesus commanded his disciples to go and make disciples, we get to experience, we're beneficiaries of that commandment. There's been disciples who discipled, who discipled, who discipled, and here we are, disciples, somewhere on our journey. And there's someone, or perhaps four or five, rabbis that you need in your life, flesh and blood rabbis along with Jesus, but someone who can put flesh, blood, bone, words, experiences today into what it means to follow Jesus. So find a rabbi, find three or four or five, get close enough so that you are covered in their dust. (laughs) This may mean that it is an author, that you invest yourself in, and you're going to read everything that they wrote. Henry Nowen is a rabbi of mine. I've read everything. I soak in Henry Nowen. Eugene Peterson's another rabbi of mine. Mary Kate Morse is a rabbi of mine in person and as an author. But these are the people who, their lives over time have demonstrated that they follow Jesus, and I want to get in their dust. I want to know their hearts so that i can know what followership and discipleship look like so whose dust are you in get in their dust and if you're wondering how to evaluate a rabbi this is so important students When you are looking for people to speak into your life, when you are looking for people who are mentors, you look for the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the signs of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You do not need to look for someone who is proclaiming that they are the rabbi for you, unless it's Jesus. You look for someone who holds the traits of the Holy Spirit. So number one, ask. Number two, get in the dust. Number three, this is a Eugene Peterson terminology, eat this book. Eugene Peterson uses those words to talk about two prophetic visions in Ezekiel and Revelation. Where an angel came to a mortal and said, take it and eat it. It will be bitter to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. What does that mean? (laughs) Eugene Peterson says, eat this book. You can't reduce this book to what you can handle. You can't domesticate this book to what you are comfortable with. You can't make it your toy poodle to do tricks with. It's not trained to respond to your commands. Devouring and digesting the Word of God into your very being so that it nourishes your flesh and bone does two things. It is comforting to you, and it is discomfitting to you. It challenges you. It's both comfortable and uncomfortable. Eat this book. It is sweet as honey. It will also be bitter to your stomach. It is a living book. It is instructive, authoritative, shaping. You know, when I was a student, Reading the Bible was a chore to me. It was something that I thought I needed to check off on my should sheet. It was something that I just thought you had to do, and frankly, I wasn't very good at it. And then I felt guilty about it. It was a terrible cycle. It was its own little eddy. (laughs) But do you know that over time, as I have eaten this book and it has nourished me, it becomes, I tell you this is true, It becomes your very best companion. It becomes the founding of your life and your experiences. No matter what age you are or what stage you are, no matter if you are a beginner or have walked with Jesus for 30 years, this Bible, the scripture still shapes your experiences, your life, the truth. It speaks into every situation in your life. And not like Emmanuel where you can go question and answer, but the overarching word of God, the living, breathing word of God is your best companion and your truest authority for your life. So ask, get in the dust, eat this book. The last one is be banded. You're going to be invited to a banded kickoff next Wednesday at 9 p.m. in the Stoos. One of my rabbis, Mary Kate Morris, calls this a mentoring community. John Wesley calls it a society or bands. Your church may have called it small groups. Jesus said, for when two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. If you want to know Jesus, you show up with people who want to know Jesus. This is a foundational, inescapable truth of the Christian life. You cannot grow over time to maturity without this kind of intentional group of people that can change and look different over time. But the work of maturity and knowing Jesus does happen in community. So how do you know Jesus? You create space to listen to Jesus together. It's not just about you talking. It's about you listening to the Holy Spirit together. Ask, get in the dust, eat this book, be banded. This is a lifetime Of knowing Jesus. You know, when Jesus stepped out of the traditional rabbi mentality and called his disciples, it tells us something about Jesus. Remember, you have to know about Jesus to trust Jesus. Here's something you can know about Jesus Jesus is a finder, Jesus is a seeker. Jesus believes in you and in me and in your heart and my heart to have the capacity to be a disciple. One of my favorite chapters of all of Scripture is Luke 15, when there's three parables of searchers that illustrate the heart of God. There's a father who watches and waits. There's a housekeeper who searches for a coin. There's a shepherd who seeks out his sheep. In each one of those stories, Jesus helps us know more about the heart of God. In the very first story in that chapter in Luke 15, it's this housekeeping woman, and she's lost one of her coins. And so she takes her whole house apart. She takes everything out of the cupboard. She gets her broom. She sweeps. She's like going in all of the corners. She has nine coins on her table, but there's one missing. And Jesus is saying, look, look at this illustration of God in the housekeeping woman who goes after the one coin. And it says when she found the coin, she threw a whole party, invited her whole neighborhood. She said, look what I found. I found the coin. (laughs) You know, Jesus shows us that Jesus is a seeker, that Jesus is a finder. We Wesleyans call it prevenient grace, the grace that goes before us. Do you know that's the kind of grace that got a hold of me and still does? That even before I could understand any kind of theology or like even knew that uh, the scripture reading wasn't a chore (laughs) it was the grace that went before me seeking me out finding me the presence of Jesus saying Sarah follow me I choose you and it's that same Jesus who says I choose you Asbury I choose you follow me you know uh, it's okay to follow step by step It's a. It's even. I I mean, Jesus will take seventeen percent of you. (laughs) Jesus will meet you where you're at, wherever you show up on the journey. But the way to be this kind of Christ follower we talk about here at Asbury, you know, it's not about our rules. It's not about our standards. Not about requirements. Not about your chapel attendance. All of those things can be helpful for sure. But it is about, do you know Jesus? you respond so will you stand with me we're going to sing one more song you're not going to sing you're going to listen to one more song (laughs) but go ahead stand up stand up stand up thank you and I wonder as you listen to these words I wonder if you will ask in your heart no you know what I want you to listen listen is there a voice that says follow me Lord Jesus, thank you for this community. Would you, uh, would you speak to each of these students in the way that only you can, in the way that only they can hear? Uh, each of us are on a journey. Each of us are different places. Would you open up our heart and eyes to you?